Welcome to another episode of the Rental Journal Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the equipment rental industry. I'm your host, Mark Simonson, and today's podcast episode is sponsored by Arrow. Arrow is the all-in-one sales tool built for you. In less than three clicks, you can now find assets and share to your customers. Streamline paperwork with deal mode where you can create and send rental deal elements in seconds from anywhere. Arrow is the tool built to power up your rental process with seamless inventory management, smart marketing, and reporting tools all from one platform. Finally, a better way to CRM. Build and close big deals the simple, powerful way with Arrow. Visit rentalarrow.com forward slash podcast to book your demo today. And today's guest is Gary Kerr. Now, Gary is a true legend of the equipment rental industry. He runs and owns his own family business called Kerr's Hire, which is a general rental business in Victoria, in Australia. But Gary first joined the industry in 1968 with a company called Geelong Hire. And I can't really explain how much Gary has actually given back to the, the industry over the years. And we'll get into it through the podcast, but Gary was a past president of the Hiram Rental Association. He was very influential in actually making it a national body rather than state by state. He has really worn his heart on his sleeve when it comes to the equipment rental industry. And I'm so glad I've had the opportunity to actually have him on the podcast and hear his story and just learn from some of his insights. So Gary, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. To kick things off, can you talk to me about how you first became involved in the equipment rental industry? Yes, well, in uh, 1968, I was working uh, for a company called uh, Transwest Horvich, and uh, I started my apprenticeship back there in 61. And after about that seven years, I thought I'd had enough, so I'd like a bit of a change. And I went to uh, work for a company called Western Motors. They were a Mazda and Mercedes dealership. And I was there for a, working there for about three years. And, and during that time, there was a guy who worked in the spare parts division and his name was Roy Lee. And uh, he, he left to, to, I got on pretty well with him, but he left to, to go to another job. Didn't think much of it. And around about two or three weeks later, I'm driving down one of the streets of Geelong and I get this toot, toot, toot. And this guy pulls me over and it was Roy. I thought oh, I a bit of a chat, so we had a bit of a chat, and I talked to him about the job he had and and what did he uh, think think of it and all that sort of stuff. And he told me all all about it. And then he said, "Well, look, the reason I'm I'm, I'm here now," he said, "is that my job when I left there was a, I had a part time job there, and of course, by now I've I've got a full time job there, and they need someone to replace me. Are you interested?" I thought, well. When you're young married, every opportunity you can get to make a spare buck, that's what you do. So what I did then was I went down and saw the guy and because I had mechanical experience, because I'm a motor mechanic by trade, I was able to go and uh, uh, be an advantage to him because Roy was just a guy that did deliveries. So I was able to do deliveries at the night time for that hour and service the equipment. And that was an opportunity that changed my whole life, really, because after two years of working there part-time, one of the mechanics left and he offered me a full-time job. For me, a car was supplied, or when I say a car, it was an old four-wheel drive Land Rover. (laughs) 
uh, at short wheelbase, but it was a vehicle because Heather used to drive me to work when I was at West Motors because being a mother and having a kid, she needed the car to get around herself. We only had the one car at that time. Yeah, and uh, anyway, I've been there. I worked there for about eight to ten, eight years later, you know, uh, and then I was probably worked myself up to being sort of second in charge. Anyway, in November, or it was about October 81, yeah, 81, uh, the, the boss said to me that, uh, look, Gary, we're, we're, I'm going to sell the business, he said, because, look, my, I'm ready to retire and my son's not interested in the business. You know, I'm going to sell it to a company called Rec Air. You know, I said, well, I knew who Rec Air were, was because they were a company that came down from Melbourne into Geelong three years earlier. And their plan was to come in and basically squeeze Geelong higher out and, uh, and yes, take over Geelong. That's because they were the professionals in a sense, you know. Anyway, I thought, oh, well, this is all right. I'll oh, work well with that, you know. And one of the other chaps in the in the office was working. He said, oh, that's it. We're stuffed now, you know. I said, oh, no, that'll be great, you know. Big company with opportunities, you know. Anyway, little, uh, little did I know that when I when we started on November the 1st, I only lasted around about two or three weeks. And as I said, I was second in charge of, of, of the business there. And this um, driver that they had would only do a driving. When he was, would drive, he would finish, would go and have a cup of coffee or something and talk to the guys in the office and wouldn't do any work because all of the staff at Geelong Hiring Service did everything you know, service work, deliveries, whatever had to be done, we did. Anyway, he'd come back uh, from his job uh, that he'd done just as a delivery and he had all his gear that he dropped on the ground. And I asked him, he went over to pick up a couple of, um, uh, pick up this gear and put it away. He made those faithful words, I always remember them, I don't have to take any effort notice of you. <laughs> but, oh, shit, okay, well, uh, We'll see about that. So I went upstairs and I had a chat to the manager. I said, look, and Ian Burrow was his name. I said, look, Ian, there's a couple of things here I don't like about what's happening here. I said, you, we do everything. You know, I've got restrictions here. I can't do work on certain pieces of equipment because they're a fittest job and a mechanics job. They're two different uh, uh, types of groups. And I said, plus, I just had a confrontation with your driver that, you know, and he's told me where to go because what role do I play here? Because I was, as I said to you before, I'm second in charge in Geelong High and I was sort of running everything. And he said, oh, don't worry about it, Gary. He said, I'll sort it out. I'll sort it out. I said, taught me some, you're not going to sort it out, you know, because who am I? I would just come from a small hire company and then we been taken over by a larger hire company. No, 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 no. that's not going to work. So anyway... We had a bit more conversation. Then he said later, he said, you know, we only bought your long hiring service for their big customers. And I thought, don't you know what this business is about? 85% of his business was small customers. Each year, sure, his big customers pay big money, but the smaller contractors, you know, were the ones that kept the business alive, especially when the bigger ones were slowed down. So anyway, I, said, oh, you know, I went home that night and I was telling Heather about it. And she said to me, well, what, what are you going to do? I must start my own business. You know, so, and she said, well, why, why not then? Why don't you? I said, because you're not going to be any good working for this mob. I put all the plans in place while I was still working there, bringing up supplies, getting a price of equipment and the types of equipment I would need. And of course, there were the, the finances. 
young married, as I said before. I had no money. My mother and my parents had a, a small a business and mum and dad lent me $15,000. They were giving me a startup. And I need to borrow $30,000 from the bank. So we approached the bank and uh, tried to, uh, to get the loan. And they knocked me back two times because they reckon, uh, as far as I was concerned, I, I wasn't taking any risk because I had no money. I was borrowing my parents' money and the other. And I was getting a bit frustrated by that. Anyway, by Christmas Eve, on Christmas Eve, I got the best present I ever got that I've ever had for Christmas. And that was they, they approved the loan. But unbeknownst to me, my mother had turned around and rang them up and told them that she'd take their business out uh, of her or her business out of their, their from them if if they didn't give me the loan, and of course they did. But the condition was that mum and dad had to come in as partners on the business, and that's basically. I mean, I think it was uh, February 1982. Uh, in between, I was yeah got all my gear that I needed and all that sort of stuff. And uh, by February 1982, we started the business. Uh, and made seventy-seven dollars and seventy-seven cents on the first, on the first day, and five thousand dollars for the month. And I thought, oh, this on my way. And that was how we started. Wow! Just through that little opportunity. Well, it it really talks to about seeing opportunities and saying yes, and and also taking risk. Like I think you you having the mindset and willingness to to take on an opportunity and just do something for yourself is also probably a testament to the type of personality that you have as well. Well, yeah, well, I, I had no no um, economic background. I didn't have anything. I was just, I always say that yeah, I'm a lowly motor mechanic, that's all I are, but I know a few lowly mechanics like Neil Wallace is one of these. Hang on, we're not lowly motor mechanics. We're, we're pretty good because he's the same. He was, a, Neil Wallace was uh, the president that followed me. He had his own business and he's the same uh, or he's not his own business, his father's business, and he moved into his father's business and carried it on. And uh, I, I, everything I did off the uh, off the sheep's back, basically, because a lot. The most important thing that I did was once I I made a, a goal that once a business started, if I could get fifty percent of what the company business that I had that I worked for. In 10 years, I'd be happy. So I, that's the aim I had. And of course, like I, I purchased all the equipment that was fast moving. Nothing, didn't take any risk with anything, just picked the right equipment that's fast moving. And that's what's get, uh, kept me going at the start. Wow, that's great. And so, so talk to me about the history of, of Kurz Hire then. The history was we started in 82. It was just Heather and I and my son, Jared. Why I say that he was two years old at the time. And every time Heather would go out and do deliveries or do something, have to pick up something, she'd come down, she'd have his, his car seat in the back of the back of the or in the youth, and she would drive around and, and take him places. He, she'd start delivering equipment. And that started, as I said, in February 1982. Uh, six months after, I think it was, maybe a bit longer, I got my first employee, who was an ex Geelong hiring service person. Uh, I'm the only person in all my years of business in 39 years that I've um, uh, I've ever poached anybody from anybody. I've never, you know, if, if I know I've got some Kenart workers working for me, but they they wanted I put an ad out for 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 an employee, and they they came because 
they wanted to change. What I did after, as the years went on, every penny I made, I put back in to buy more equipment. And Geelong Cement and Intertech Pivot were two of Geelong Hiring Service's biggest customers. And I knew that Rick Air couldn't supply the gear, all the gear to them, because they only had a certain amount of gear in Geelong. So I'm not sure I put in the gear that they had, uh, that they needed uh, in my hire fleet. And I approached all the supervisors who I knew, who I knew very well from both of these places before I actually, um, before I started the business and told them that, look, I've got all this gear here. And one of the things I can guarantee you is, is the service. I can have the gear here for you anytime, 24 seven, whenever you want it quick process, because I go down and I do that, do that as deliveries myself. Rick Air, who were just, uh, had, had had them as their customers, they would take it two, two, two to two and a half hours from the time they rang somebody, because you had to ring a call center in Melbourne. By the time they contacted somebody down here, they would have to then turn around and get organized. Now, they have, the cement works have big kilns that, that are heated kilns, and they, they're driven around by air compressors. And they have their own air compressors. They have two electric air compressors that they run them. But if they were to break down, or one of them was to break down, the other one was the standby one. So I had half an hour to get that down there. Otherwise, the kilns would buckle, and that cost them millions of dollars to replace them. Now, they could never work under that time with rec air. So I just kept going up there and, and, and giving them things and I'd call out. So I was going out at two and three o'clock in the morning both to both of those companies so many times per week, just delivering equipment. And that then eventually after say three years, I think it was three or four years, I had them as full customers right? because they changed over. Now in 1988, we moved, we grew so big, we couldn't stay in the place that we were. We moved to our purpose-built uh, premises we have now in North Geelong. And by the time I got there, I said to you before, I had 50%, one of 50% of the business in 10 years. I had the business in five years, sorry, in eight years, when, when, as we moved in, because that's all, what they spent with me, I was able to, Purchase the building, or put myself in hock, of course, but, uh, but uh, purchase that building, uh, the premises, should I say, and build a purpose-built building. And one of the best things about it was that I wanted to get the right building, and I went around to five or six different hire companies getting ideas, and that's the first thing I realised how great this industry was, because those people were so willing to actually help me and uh, give me advice. And there was one fellow, a fellow called Bill Pyle. Bill Pyle was with, um, uh, I can't think of his company's name, just quickly. But he, he was our owner of a, of a business up in Melbourne. And he had something like what I had, what, what I wanted to build. And he, he gave me all the right ideas. He said, look, he said, you own everything on the ground, but you also own whatever's up above you. So I built the building higher so I could put pellet racking in, store on my building up off the ground so I could keep it compact. So that was in 88. And then about, we just kept bottling along and, and growing and growing and growing. And then in 2009, there was a company called Leading Hire. Oh, sorry, before I go on to that, there was an opportunity in 2005 to sell the business. 
I was approached by Peter Lankett from Kennard to ask if I was interested in selling the business. And I said, oh, look, you know, I, no, I don't know. Uh, I, because of that stage, you know, I, I was getting pretty close to 65 years of age sort of thing. And um, anyway, I said, look, yeah, let me have a think about it. So I went, I told Heather and Heather wasn't happy about it because they were doing a lot of acquisitions, as you know, when you spoke to Peter on, on, uh, uh, on his podcast. So I went home and, I, and Jared was working for me at the time, full time. And uh, I said, look, Peter's made this, you know, said, look, it's, someone approached him in Geelong that wanted to sell their business. And he said, look me in the eye and he said, dad, he said, I've always dreamt one day I'd own the business. And I thought, in the story, you know, as far as that's concerned, you know. So I, I, I remember it well because it was a 2005 uh, preliminary or grand final eve uh, that I went up to Melbourne and had breakfast with Peter uh, and said, look, told him a story. I said, thanks for the opportunity, but no thanks. And he said, look, I totally agree, you know, and uh, which was, was great. But after, before they actually moved down, Kennard always go to a, um, um, a, a seminar or, or, or a team meeting and they were down at Lawn. If you know Lawn, it's, it's south of Geelong. And on the way back, they all called into the branch and all looking around. Pete's looking around and looking everywhere. And uh, uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, they're spying on me or something. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, oh, don't worry, Peter. Look, it's already... It's already started. I said, and there's a sign writer put up, putting up the, the sign 100% Geelong owned company. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And then he turned around about a little bit later. Um, um, he said, Look, there's that little hire company down the road. What are they? I said, Oh, you don't want to worry about them. I said, I Don't want to worry you. Uh, and then that was, that was in 2006, I think it was, when that happened. And then three years later, uh, one of the staff members of this company was in the front office at, at our site and said that the owner was going to close the business down, sell his equipment and, um, and, uh, and just sell the premises. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because he's on the other side of town to me, to me because well, I was Kerr's north side hire and this was on the south side of Geelong. Anyway, I um, uh, went and approached the guy and said, look, would you sell me your gear and would you rent the yard to me? Because when Kennards had come in, a lot of our customers on that side of town were going to Kennards. And he said, yes. So we started that business in 2009, basically bought it straight away. And by 2011, we'd grown it so big, we had to build another purpose-built business 600 metres down the road. And I can tell you, uh, my opposition wasn't happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... Uh, now that, that's in 2009. Anyway, we kept bottling along as we as just in growing the business all the time because we are a sales and service business. We sell equipment and we service equipment. We service our customers' equipment. We'll sell our second-hand gear to our customers because what happens is when they turn around and want it service, they bring it back to us. So the business kept expanding. And then we took on a, the Wacker Noisen dealership and that Jared's just grown that so big it's not funny. But in 2016, uh, we had an opportunity to purchase another business in, in uh, Ocean Grove called Ballerine Hire. And the, the guy there was had bought into the business about three or four years earlier and really should should not have, you know. And, uh, 
and then we purchased uh, that business in 2011, uh, sorry, um, 16. And now the owner of that property wouldn't sell the property to us. So he's built a purpose-built building for us there as well. So we've got these three really well-established well businesses in Geelong now. I love the fact that when when Jared said, hey, I, I sort of dreamt of owning the business one day, you didn't even really think twice about, no, about the, the future. No. And I think that really probably talks about the type of person you are and what the business means to, to your family as well. And, and that's always been my belief that I've had ever since then, you know, like getting your family involved in your business, it, being a family business, that's that's the core to, to a good family business is, is, we'll talk about that later, but I've got some... Uh, yeah, but that's, that's, it's having your kids come up through the business is so important mm, because yeah. it's no good getting them, if they've got their careers and then you, you force them to come into it, they don't have the same passion as what you do. And believe me, he has the passion. It's the yeah. same as what I do. Because he's, but as I say, he's grown up with it. Now, when he was uh, uh, about four or five years of age, Heather made him a little pair of overalls with Kerr's hire on the back and his name on the front. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how he used to come around with a rag out of the back of his pocket and start working on the gear and checking the, the smaller gear that he could check. And that and he used to work part-time on the weekends to make some money. That's amazing. You sound very proud. Really oh, I love him. Love him. Love him to death. So, so you said that you had that amazing growth and then obviously the acquisitions and things like that. So, what about the staff? Like, how did you, and you mentioned that you didn't poach staff, you were sort of recruiting. So talk, talk to me about the type of people that you were trying to recruit into the business over those years. Well, we were, because like I said to you earlier, everybody did everything. We were perfectly out. We were, always wanted people with mechanical experience. And I know some of the opposition companies uh, get don't have employ um, mechanics or maintenance people. We do because we service that. I always try to get a mechanically minded person or motor mechanics. Now, it's the hardest thing in the world to get is a motor mechanic in, in today's world because some of the ones want like working on cars or they want working on trucks, but working on different types of machinery, they don't, they're not interested to a certain extent until they get in there because of the variety that you have in hire with that great diverse range of equipment. You know, that's the type of person that we're after someone that can go out and do a delivery if he wants to, you know, we've got to wash the gear down if he has to. We've got to, yes, certainly we've got to have office staff with high controllers and, and, and management staff, but the, the core group of people you want are the people that are servicing your equipment and getting it ready for, for, to go out and hire so it doesn't break down. And that's the most, that's the most important thing. It's, it's got to be uh, uh, reliable. And, and that's why you've got to get the right type of people. The fact that you mentioned uh, like the Wallace family and yourself and, and these mechanics, these mechanically minded people, I think there's an opportunity for a lot of people to think outside the box in terms of what their career looks like as well. Like you don't have to be a mechanic forever. You, there is so many no, opportunities no, in hire. Well, we've got our mechanic. We, we have a, a, one of the guys that came to us, Stewie now, he's our workshop manager, but he's, he's worked his way around. He was a start off as a driver. Uh, and he was an electrician by trade, uh, water electrician. He started uh, as a driver, and then he, 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 he very good on maintenance stuff. And then one day, and he's, he's in his 60s, and uh, one day one of our high controllers left, and we needed someone uh, to get, and next thing he stuck his hand up, and he said, oh, boss, you know, I'll, uh, 
yeah, my interest in the job, and I was on holidays at the time when Jared told me that Stewie put his hand up, and I laughed. I said, Stewie, you know, can't believe you. Put him in there. What, what are his attributes? Well, he wasn't good on the computer. Okay, that's number one. That was his worst, you know. But everything else, he knew the customers, he knew the equipment, he knew the deliveries, he knew all about the operation of the business. So it was a walk-up start to go straight into the into the into there. All we had to do was teach him the computer, and we did that for probably five or six years, uh, or more. Yeah, five or six years. Anyway, the opportunity came up for a workshop a supervisor, because uh, the workshop foreman we had uh, we had to, we changed what we were doing, and, and he had to retrench him, and we put him back as a supervisor. He stuck his hand up again. I'll do it. And that's the type of people you have because that, there's that opportunity, as we talked about before. People take it as you go through. You know, starting off as a mechanic doesn't mean to say you're going to end up as a mechanic. Mm. That's, yeah. that's the opportunities you have in the higher industry. Yeah. I think that's something that we probably need to figure out how we can promote that story better outside the higher industry as well. How can we get people outside? Yeah. Yeah, we've tried. We, 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 we've, we've got careers in hire and all those sort of things. We've tried that back many years Years ago, when I was president, we we, we, you know, we had careers in hire, uh, and to get certificates of, of hire and 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 for hire controllers, but it was very hard. Would they put it through the school system? But they never really took off at all. Hopefully, the, the podcast can sort of reach people that are outside the industry yeah. and give them some interest. Yeah, well, look, we we train them up though. We've got now we've got uh, guys that come to us as as, as uh, one guy worked in a plumber for a plumber, and he, he was a plumber. And now we give them uh, small mechanic uh, careers like apprenticeships, right? As mature age apprentices, right? And we, they get trained up and they, they can work on small engines and things like that. So they get qualifications. And we, and that te- we teach them all the mechanical stuff. We give everybody the opportunity to try anything. You know, like if he's, even if he doesn't know anything about mechanics and he's the hard hand, we'll say, well, look, you give you directions on what he's got to do. I mean, it's not rocket science what you have to learn in hire. You just got to have that mental that ability to understand what mechanics is about. Yeah, and the passion and the drive. Yes, you want to, want yeah. to work together yeah, as right. a team. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit more about the family side. So, so how important is it to keep Kerr's Hire as a family-run business? Oh, paramount, paramount. You know, it's the only way to put it this way. Uh, Jared has sisters, older sisters who are not interested in the business. We have uh, a, a grandson, but it is my daughter's grandson. He's not a Kerr, he's a Bales. And he's got these two daughters. As, as you know, we've got careers in hire. We've got women in hire, a lot of women in hire now. And there's no reason why any woman can't come in now and be start in the business and come through. So I'm sure Jared will try and, and get his kids involved in it and i've already got my grandson i've got a top like this with his name on it samson or sam because i he's got his own little top and and he's he wants to come down and start doing some little jobs down there for us but as when we can but but covid's sort of thrown a bit of a spanner in it and but it's Mm. it's it's paramount to keep it in the family because there's a lot of them there's I said to you about the Wallaces, it's the Burtons, you know, Travis and Blake Burton, you know, Mark Burton, the president, current president now. Um, the Wallaces, uh, there's, um, uh, oh, there's so many of them around. 
already that come through as from family businesses and uh um and that's that's the way it's going to grow it, it, uh, by those kids being in the business if you haven't got anyone to follow it up on you eventually you'll sell it off because once you get to the age of 60 years oh, i've had enough of this you know it's too hard but if you know that you've got someone at your back that makes a hell of a difference and, yeah, I, and, and I encourage everybody to, to get their sons involved early, not late. Yeah, because they have their careers, you know, like Jared started off his career, uh, his career uh, when he was 16 and he went to uni and as, as an architectural draftsman and an engineer. Uh, and, and he did that for a year and he didn't like the boss he worked for. He was, he was a bit of a prick. <laughs> and uh, so he came back and worked for me and did his engineering course. Uh, well, in between, and when he finished his engineering course, he said, "Look, he said, um, Dale, I'm going to try and get a job in engineering." And I said, "Well, while you're, <clears throat> while you're trying to get a job, come and work full time for me." After 12 months, I said, "Jared, you're a bloody hire man," because he couldn't get a job at that time. It was things were were tight. I said, "You're a hire man. Just come in, stay in now." And he can he start off when he first came full time as driver maintenance guy. He knew more about the gear than most of the guys there that I used to recruit. And then he went into the office of hire controller. And then when my hire manager left, he moved up to the to the senior hire controller. Then he moved up to general manager, self-appointed. And then he moved up, no, sorry, he went up to hire manager, self-appointed. Because one day I got this card and it's got hire manager. I said, when did you get hire manager? <laughs> and then a few years later, I saw a general manager. <laughs> that's what he's like. Jeez, that's mm. so funny. No, that's yeah. great. And, and I think, yeah, succession planning is, is an important factor. And and <clears throat> there, there's organisations out there. I know Andy Kennard is heavily involved with Family Business Australia. And there, there's, yes. yeah, there's, there's definitely various organisations out there that can help family business. Because for me, it's like you, you touched on it earlier on, like those small businesses, their advantage is that they're agile and they can provide fast service and all that yes. sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and one thing about, uh, you, you talk about succession planning, we went to the convention in Queen in, uh, in New South Wales, because uh, Sydney 2000 was the Olympics, so they changed it to 2001. And we went into this uh, uh, succession planning seminar and sitting down there listening to this guy talk, and he was telling about how people on the land is, is, is one he highlighted where one son stays on the land and the other three uh, kids go move to the city and work in the city and get their jobs. The parents pass away and the sons and daughters come back and they don't want to work in the business. They want to, they want to sell it up. He can't. And the one that's there that's been working the business or the, the farm for so many years, then has to turn around and, and um, uh, basically try and buy them out if he can. If he can't, he has to sell it and he misses out on his opportunity. Mm. That opened our eyes. So I came back, as soon as I came back from there, we started the process with our solicitor to, to, to work on the Because Jared's got two older sisters, there becomes this, this you know, how do you break up a business and and the wealth that we've created, thank you, to the, to the business being successful, we own property. So there we've got this issue. So we made sure that everything was covered. And it's taken us nearly 10 years to get there because of the expansion of the business each time. We have to go and revisit it. So any hire company, I urge that if you've got family in the business, you've got to get that done because it gets so messy. 
and it can cause and i said to my kids no way are going to have your kids fighting over money mm. you know and there's no, no need to and there's no need to so we've, we've got that all in plan and the two girls understand that joe will inherit the business but everything's still got to be valued and divided equally yeah yeah, okay. That's awesome. That's really good advice for, for small family business owner or any family business owner, really. That's, um, yeah, it's good to hear that. Yeah. So, so from an industry standpoint, how do you think the industry has evolved uh, over the last 20 years or so? Oh, enormously, because <clears throat> I was president, uh, I, I joined the committee uh, in 1995 in Victoria, and I was quite uh, really... Um, uh, thought it got on the committee because i want to put something back into what what the industry's done for us over the years and uh and then in 1998 i was appointed president of victoria someone uh president resigned and then the next uh meeting we had was uh we had national councillors national councillors with two guys from each state that would go to meetings uh and talk about uh we had a national association, but it was just a, a body. It was nothing. It did have no power over the rest of the states or anything. And what what um, these councillors do would go and listen to it, talk to each other three times a year, you know, and bring back the, what they were talking about, and what was happening in their states, and bring it back to us and tell us what was happening in the different states. When I was elected president, I said these these guys were just pick, guys picked at random uh, or by the committee to do that and I said well the president should be there you know so I decided to go uh, and with the immediate past president he'd never been to on the uh, been a national council before or either at high we were sitting on the first meeting when we got up in Sydney and they turned around and uh, oh, a few questions were going around and they asked one question I didn't know anything about it was, it was Victoria I said oh how come I don't know anything about this what 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 she said, then the next thing they jumped down my throat and said, you bloody Victorians, you know, you're the ones that said you're supposed to have one uh, higher control, but uh, you couldn't have two of them uh, in the one year. You had to have uh, one that would, would come back the next year. And I said, well, I didn't know about that, you know. And they, they, they all hated Victorians. I said, what the hell have I got myself into here, you know? So anyway, I had, had lunch and I couldn't eat my lunch. I was that bloody <laughs> nodded up. And after lunch, they started talking about something that they'd been working on for the last, say, 12 months, starting a national association, a truly national association. So well, this is right up my alley. And uh, anyway, we, it, after two or three meetings, we decided to put the, the process in, in and get a CEO. And at that particular time, um, there was uh, the board had, had got Peter Lankin, Peter Walden, and myself to go and interview all the candidates for a, um, a CEO, and it's had this one candidate, Phil Newby. And anyway, uh, we decided to interview Phil first, and we interviewed him at uh, Kennard's office in uh, in Sydney. And one of the things I had. If you're going to have someone run your industry, you've got to have someone that knows your industry. Just like we talked about before with your staff, if you've got you know, the right staff. Phil had been working with GKN and other companies through the industry for years, you know, so we understood hire. That was the concept. We had some four or five other candidates, not one of them was a hire person. So 
I rang Peter the next day and Peter and I had a chat about it because Peter Walden wasn't really, <laughs> kept calling him Phil Newbury all the time and I don't know why. <laughs> but Peter and I had a chat and we said, look, you know, this is, Phil's the right guy because Peter knew him very well and Phil's the right guy. So we finally convinced Peter Walden to, to say, well, hang on, we put Peter, uh, Phil on. So we put Phil on, Phil on to start it. But to get this thing going, we had to get all the states to actually disband. But one of the biggest problems the states had was money. They all had money in the bank, especially Victoria and New South Wales. So what we had to do, we decided that Peter and I and Phil would go around to all the different state meetings and sell this prospect of this association, this truly national association. Most people agreed, except for Victoria. We had four guys that were just totally against it, and they were totally against anything that the association did, really. And when we come to all the AGMs to disband, every state followed the rules and disbanded. The only one that wouldn't follow the rules to disband or didn't want to was Victoria. And we we're worried about Victoria because, so what I did, one, and because I talked to you about money, what the problem was with money. I rang my solicitor and said, look, how do we get around this with all of the, the, the stake of the money? He said, well, what you do, he says, you go and open six bank accounts and you put all their money in the bank accounts. And then what you do is, is you say they can have it for any projects that they want. They, you know, they just apply to the board if they want some projects that they want to fund in their own state, then they can use that money. But the money sits in the bank. They don't just draw it out themselves. Come to the day of um, our Victorian AGM, I knew that these people would have a, a, a backup plan. That would mean get proxy votes to vote us out because we had to get 75% of the votes. But I'd heard from somebody else years ago that one of the guys wanted to become president of the Hire Association and he turned around and wanted to, uh, he, want, he wanted it. So he, but the, the board had their own person they wanted to, to be president. So he went and got all these people in his own area to nominate him for and, and give him a proxy vote. And of course, he defeated uh, the candidate the board wanted. So this was in the back of my mind. So I asked our board, I sent them a sheet of paper with all the members that are on it, members list, to ring every one of them up and get their proxy votes and get them to send it to you. You send them the cop the standard. Anyway, we did it and we got through in the end because they come with their proxy vote, but we had more. <laughs> and that's that time at the end of that that's how we started the national association and then phil started and he appointed jenny laurie that was his secretary and you can see how much it's grown since then i mean we've got so many members our conventions are all fantastically run by the office now you have james oxenham here now because phil newby has is uh he resigned but poor old not well at the moment he'd had a stroke and uh I learned so much of him while I was there. I learned so much of Peter while I was there, but that was how the actual the association started. Never. It's a, it's amazing that like if all that effort wasn't put into it, there might not be a national body today for the High Rental oh, Association. Oh, exactly right, and, and not not only by me and others. I mean Phil, Jenny, Peter, 
uh, the office staff that's grown. I mean, we used to run the conventions. I, I, uh, my second year, second year as president, we had we had we had, we had the the uh, ninety nine convention held down in Melbourne. We had an event managers, but a fellow called um, uh, oh, gee, I can't think of his name. Anyway, um, we had both of the Melbourne sorry, and I we had he I coaxed him into helping me because he'd run one before and I didn't know anything about running a convention. And we actually ran this convention off the seat of our pants, made the biggest profit we'd ever made on a, on a convention. And, and it was just great because we had an outdoor sort of exhibition as well where people could use the machinery and drive around and operate the machinery rather than just go and see a static display. And then I did one two years, three years later, three years later, yeah, and had the worst loss. <laughs> That we ever made at a convention because we decided to do an outside convention in a, in a, down at Docklands because I said, we're in the event industry. We can put up the marquees. This will save money here and there. Pigs, we did. God, it was cost us a fortune. Wow. So so maybe for the listeners, because this is really interesting insight for the history, what what was the landscape of the, the first annual convention? Like, what, how did it work? Oh, look, that's going back well before my time because they they were meeting in back in the 60s up in uh um there's a place in new south wales uh, oh what's his name uh it'll come to me but uh terrible they they had a um they run the first one there and probably only had about probably 100 people or 200 people there and they just have a few supplies come along and and uh display their goods and things like that that's how it would work but as the years progressed, um, the the the, uh, the states used to run it, and they used to get event companies to run it for. Me, state would get a different event company. Now, what they do is, well, going when we first when we started with Phil, we then commandeered two individual people to run it. A lady called Bev Everall and Jackie Gomi. Jackie run the the convention side of it, and Bev ran the um, uh, booking side of it for, for, the, for the suppliers and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, uh, we found out that, uh, and that was very, very successful, but we found out that Bev was adding 20% on every, everything else that apart from what she was getting as a retainer. <laughs> and that, wow. that got up Phil's nose, I can tell you, he didn't like that at all because <laughs> what she'd done. So anyway, we... Um, Jackie Gomi then took over and started to run it. And then the, the girls in the office, she Jackie ran the high convention, like as far as the exhibition is concerned. Then the office started to take over running it. And now the office do a fantastic job organising it. And they actually run the lot as well, you know. So it's all done by um, by the national office, which it's been so successful. It, it's so proud of what we've put in from the start to get to where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to see. Cause I guess a lot of people that are new to the industry, they just see the end product. They just see, Oh, there's always been a, a national body yeah, uh, and it's always been there, but there's a lot of work that people from the industry need to do to get the, the oh. higher rental association to where it is today. Well, we, the day after every convention or not, sorry, the month after every convention is finished, we have a meeting to talk about what happened the year before and how we can improve it on that to get and, and plan for the next year. Because 
it's every year that happens and this is an enormous uh, venture you know and uh, and we've got it down pat really now we've got it i think the biggest one we've ever had was was the one we just had in queensland naturally because we didn't have one for 2019 uh and it was just excellent everybody came and a lot of people like to come to the queensland one because they can make a holiday out of it before and after if they want to you know but uh but all the smaller states uh like we don't go to adelaide every year or or, or perth every year we you know it, it's generally uh melbourne and sydney uh but adelaide proved to be a good spot to go to as well it, a lot of us don't logistically for for the suppliers it's very hard because they've got to come especially if they're perth you know to get some of those big machinery that they don't have over there to go it costs them a fortune and that's mm. the suppliers are the are the backbone of the, of the of the actual convention without them we're nothing we'd be a seminar that's all we would be but the, and not not a lot of people want to go and listen to speakers all day uh, but you learn the best part about the conventions is what you learn from your fellow members when you walk around and you meet them every 12 months and you talk to them about how are you going you know i've learned so much from my opposition but they're not my opposition if you know what i mean mm -hmm. uh and they're just members association members they're just fantastic people high people yeah and just so many opportunities to learn and grow a business like i, I had uh cliff chubwick on the podcast earlier and yep. he was talking about uh them going up to their first HRA convention and if it wasn't for that convention like it wouldn't have really spurred them to even push even harder in terms of getting more into rental and just uh, all those little things that add up like the networking side and learning from others and things like that it, just, it all comes together as one like we are one industry working together the networking if you, if you, if you come to one next time okay if you, you haven't been to one have you no I've, I've got right. every year okay. every year I go to one. okay yeah. oh you go to one do you yeah you see what happens at one, I haven't mentioned this. I don't know. Uh, you see what happens when you when you're sitting in a, in a, a maybe a luncheon or or anywhere, all people sitting around talking. You can't hear yourself think because they're all talking to each other and they're all talking about hire. You know that's what and 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 the networking that goes on between the suppliers and the and the and the hire companies is phenomenal. You know it's just that's that's the best part about it. You know. The, during the day it's a trudge you know you're walking around all the time and talking to everybody but when you get out and out with a few drinks and all that sort of stuff and three o'clock in the morning four o'clock in the morning <laughs> the hra is not promoting after hours drinking <laughs> disclaimer the latest i've been gone is three o'clock in the morning in canberra oh, john Bella, john uh, King from Nifty wanted to keep buying me a beer and I kept refusing him all the time. It was at three o'clock in the morning with well closing the market. Oh, well, you can buy me one for the last one. <laughs> John King from Nifty. I wasn't drinking, I wasn't drinking. I was quite sober. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. So so on the topic of, of the Hiram Association, they do provide a lot of services to members as well. And and part of that, uh, one of one of the challenging things over the past years has been the the, the PPSA. Or PPSR, the register. So, look, we, we don't want to go on for, for too long about this because we. we how, many, how many hours have I got? <laughs> I know you're very passionate, but but I, th I think uh, for the overseas listeners and just for for people, can you explain what is the the Personal Property Securities Act and I guess what impact it's had on the Australian rental industry? 
Personal property security there. Personal property security is the most draconian piece of legislation that's ever been inflicted on an industry, especially our industry. As far as ownership is concerned, it wipes it wipes it out, PPS, technically for an owner, business owner like us, hire. When you what secure it's what PPS is supposed to do is protect your security interests. You're a financial institution, a bank. I hire purchase a piece of equipment off you, right? So you take out a personal property uh, a registration against my company so that if I can't sell it on to somebody else without their knowledge. And if somebody goes, uh, if I go bankrupt, they'll claim that, that back off me. But if I go then go and, and do that, and if thinking of a, of a, of a a higher purchase and at the end of the higher purchase right they then have to cancel that registration and you own me i own that property i, I own that scissor lift we'll talk say call it a scissor lift i own customer comes in to me wants to hire a scissor lift and he says to me this was what it was like at the start he says to me okay i want i want to hire a scissor lift i said how long do you want it for oh i don't know the moment you say that in the terminology of PPS, that's called an indefinite hire. So what you must do is register that piece of equipment on the PPS register, right? And you've got to name the grantor. The grantor is the person that you hire it to. He's got to have an ABN or an ACN. So you've got to get, get his ABN and you've got to put it in the collateral class. So you've got to put it, scissor lift as a motor vehicle. So you have to put all these, register all these different things. You get one registration wrong, maybe one digit wrong in your in the registration. You get the ACN, but you should have got the ABN, all that sort of stuff. That becomes an imperfected registration. You don't know that until something happens. Your hire company goes out, and, and if you put it this way, and if you don't register it from from when he goes and he goes over over the three months. It's a, it's a, uh, it goes bankrupt. The liquidator will come in and go on the PPS registration to see if that piece of machinery is registered on the PPS. If it's not, then what happens is the, he, he can reclaim that, he can claim that and sell it at auction to pay the preferential creditor, who is normally a bank. So that's, that's the basic of what it is. All right. So we've been fighting for years to try and get out of it because we got a two-year exemption after, I think it was 2017. So we started this in 2009. And we had, um, what we do? We got a two-year exemption in 2017. Now, the two years has come up, 2019, and people are still getting caught. Because we lost, in the first two, two years of PPS, $150 million was lost to the industry through PPS. So we've been fighting for the government to change the PPS and get us out of it and make us exempt because PPS, as I said earlier, is based on security interest. Once I've sold that piece of equipment, it's mine. So after the two years or in the two years, for one year and 365 days, it's not a security interest because it doesn't come under the PPS. For 365 days and one day, it now comes up to be registered on the PPS. So we asked, where's this fine line that you keep saying that, yes, 
one day it's not is and one day it's not. I just find that we just can't understand that. We should be exempt. Now we've been fighting for it for all these years and this year they uh, said that they were kind of get us out of it. Now that was in March, I think it was, and we're still bloody waiting. And then all it is is needs a stroke of a pen, basically. It needs to, to have an exemption added because there's already exemptions in the PPS. But that's in a nutshell what it is. But believe me, there's a lot more to it than, than that because I know you're running out of time. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, um, who are some influential people that have helped you work through the, the, the PPSA? Uh, a PPS at PPSA, sorry, in terms of yeah, well, Phil, Phil, Phil Newby, Phil Newby, uh, and, and Oliver Stein. Oliver is with Buddy A. Perry, he's a um, he's a lawyer with Buddy A. Perry, and, and uh, James now, uh, since Phil's there, Tim, Tim Nuttall, and I, Tim and I both are hire companies. Tim is, has been the Access Hire uh, president, he owns his, uh, uh, a company called Access Hire in Melbourne, sells scissor lifts and boom lifts. I represent the general hire companies, and we both, both Phil and I, are, oh, sorry, both Tim and I, <laughs> we are so passionate about getting out of this, mate, I can tell you. We're going to go to the grave first. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll get out of it because uh, it's, I've got, uh, I've been and I've seen our local uh, Labor politician down here. If it's our Labor to get in the government, it'd be out tomorrow. But we cannot convince these buddy Liberals that, you know, or... It's actually the bureaucrats that cause the problem. The bureaucrats are the people that write the, the things, not, not the Attorney General doesn't write it, it's the bureaucrats that write it. And this, this act was written by 24 banking lawyers and insolvency lawyers. Now, if you turn around and tell me, if I was gonna write my uh, to conditions of hire, would I write them to suit my business? Of course I would. And that's what they've done. They've wrote it to suit them. And it's the most complicated piece of legislation you've ever seen, mate. You know, even they aren't, some lawyers can't understand it. It's crazy, crazy. Mm. Yeah, well, it's great that you and Tim and, and various other people, Phil and James, are, are helping give back to the industry by even just supporting and fighting those sort of things because it is important that uh, not everyone just sort of accepts it and moves on. You got you got to fight back and, and do what's yes. right for the industry as well. So that's yeah, exactly thank exactly. you for that. Mm. So, so something I did want to ask you is with so many years experience in the industry and you are coming up to uh, 40 years of running your own business, which is an amazing achievement. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask like a, a two part question. So, so one is what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to start their own hire or rental business? And then also what are some of the key KPIs that those new business owners should be monitoring as part of that business? Well, for someone to give advice to someone who wants to start a hire business, I'd be very reluctant because I've already given a person advice and and uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> the my advice though, if I was to give it, say you, you must know the industry. I mean, there's a lot of people that come out and and uh, uh, don't know the industry for for that reason is that they don't understand the rules and regulations of what's involved in it. Just like I started off, no one can start off a business like I started off uh, now in today's world and, and grow it that quickly the way I, we were. I'd just be lucky at that particular time. But my advice to them would be is know your product, know your customer customer base, that you, the customers that you're trying to achieve, 
make sure that there's no you, you're not too close to uh, um, your, your fellow fellow hire companies because it's it's not going to work uh, if 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 you're that way inclined when you want to be thinking like you've got McDonald's and, and, and Hungry Jacks all next to each other think people are going to come to you because they, they haven't got it next door doesn't work that way but understand the industry so who else do you think you mentioned a few names already but who, who played a big influence on you from a mentor perspective in your career um but Jack Jack Gray my boss my first boss yeah he was he was just terrific he just taught me a lot about um uh your customers are the most important part of your business. Teaching me about making sure that you treat every customer that you have as if he was your best customer. Make sure you have great, a good, good product and reliable equipment and your delivery and pickups. You get them there on time because while you might think, oh, well, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, late, it's going to be, there could be 50 people on that site waiting for you to get that piece of equipment there and you don't let them down. Those are the, the most important things that Jack taught me. Uh, other mentors, Phil Newby taught me a lot about uh, being president, what I needed to do to be a president. Jackie Gomi, who was the, the person that did all the um, um, exhibitions for us, for the association for about seven or eight years. I learned so much from her just how about run things in the convention sort of manner, right? How we could apply them every other year that, and even after uh, when Jackie left, you know, just, she was just terrific, you know. Peter Lankin, when he was, when Pete and I were president, you know, uh, and vice president, he was just terrific, you know, and uh, he, he, he just, his nature, <laughs> Peter's nature, and, and was something and his attitude to people who who, who uh, were weren't pulling their weight taught me a lot about how how to, how to handle that. <laughs> yeah. He was great, Pete. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And so, if you could go back and give some advice to your younger self, what would you say? Mm, opportunity, Sunny Vim. Opportunity, if they're there, take them. You never know until you have a go. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, I think every now and then you've got, you've got to take a risk, calculated risks every now and then and, and really just put yourself out there to, to know, hey, yeah. if, I, if I take this risk, then who knows what the, on the other side of the door is. Yeah, and, it, and hard work doesn't come easy. Simple yeah. as that, you know, because with the hours that I put in after hours in this business, Jared has not, you know, like he probably puts them in mentally, right? Uh, and and things like that, but the hours that I I put in when I talked to you about going out to Geelong Cement and and the others, uh, they were sometimes you know as I say two and three times a week uh, at all hours of the morning, and I'd still be at work at seven o'clock the next morning. Wow, you know, that's crazy. That, yeah, yeah, but that's what you had to do. That was what that was the service I had to give to my customers. Mm. I um we had. Uh, Ash Woodcock from RPM Hire on the, uh, on the oh, podcast yes. as well. And he said a funny quote, which sort of aligns to what you said before. He said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Luckier I get. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's okay. I look at the other people who say to me, geez, you're lucky. I said, yeah. And the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of my staff is quite, yeah. One of my staff uh, said to us, he said, oh, 
you know, you, you, you're like... You're like a pot of gold. You seem to everything you touch turns to gold. <laughs> Andy, come on. <laughs> That's so good. Good work yeah. out, Andy. <laughs> That's it. All right. And yeah. so, how do you define success? Oh, I just said it. Hard work, hard work, and passion. Passion, passion will beat everything anytime because I. That's the greatest thing that I've had in this industry in the forty years, and that's why I'm still going because. Once you start something, you know, you just, it's, it's different if you're working for a boss, right? Work for yourself and see the, and get the rewards. In my whole 40 years, I've had one year where I didn't make a profit. And that's, that's a testament to this industry, how it can be if you do it the right way. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. All right, Gary, well, I really want to thank you for what you've given back to the industry as well. I think mm. you, you're, you're, you're really an advocate and you're someone that's really shared your experiences and, and given back and, and really worn your heart and your sleeve. So from the industry, I guess, from this podcast, mm. I'd like to thank you for the efforts that you've put in. And I want to thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, Mark. It's been fantastic. Appreciate it. This podcast episode was proudly supported by our premier partner, Ken Artai.